return to Northmore. Meta Episode 1, running time 48 minutes. Welcome to Return to Northmore. This is Tim. This is going to be a meta episode this week. And what a meta episode is, is something that's related to what we talk about on Return to Northmore. That is a D&D adventure, but not necessarily the D&D adventure itself. This time we're going to talk about D&D and indie game mechanics. Will they blend? With me tonight is Doyce Testerman, who's one of our local experts on independent games, and he's going to talk to us about his experiences and what he's worked with in terms of independent games and mixing them with D&D. Welcome, Doyce. And hi. And I'm not sure about the local expert thing, but I guess Nexus. Uh, Tim, you've said before that you do a search on the internet and look for an indie game. You'll probably have one of my sites come up, but that's because I'm storing all this information. Yes, well, you're definitely a Nexus of indie game information. Part of the reason that Random Wiki is the way it is because I let the people who are in the indie community know that that site is out there and uh, that they can just use it. Uh, I see so much activity on that site. Flurries of week-by-week game activity. It's like, oh, yeah. they must be playing HeroQuest. Uh, this oh, yeah. There's so much because... information there. And plus, if you are curious about Firefly Info, there's also a Firefly Wiki that Doyce has put together. That one is a little bit more work that I can take credit for. Not all of it, again, but uh, that one does has a lot more of... Uh, me in it i guess because yep. i'm a so we'll have all kinds of links in the show notes to all the very stuff we're going to talk about tonight sure. so don't feel like you've got to scramble for links here but there's all kinds of information out there and a lot of it ends up getting stored on some site that Deutsch runs. So. <laughs> well that's because when i'm trying to figure out most of these games and D is no different i try to get together it's like oh that's good information I, and i'm not good at bookmarks i don't like them uh, because <laughs> of the fact you want it on your own site where you well i work it. on that's part of it. I work on three or four different machines at any given time, yep. and the bookmarks don't all sync up. I can oh, spend software on that, so I, I put it in the site location, and I have been burned, I think probably everybody has, with some really cool thing that you found on the internet. It's like, this is yep. awesome. This is a fantastic thing. And you, you bookmark it, and you go back 10 months later, and it's gone. Well, especially a lot of this indie stuff sometimes tends to come and go. and so You've got some people that are really more like the rocks and the sand. Everybody has their 15 minutes of fame or 15 minutes of furious activity, and then they're <laughs> done. You've got games that are sort of the sand, and you want to save that stuff. So right, I've, and a lot of the cool stuff about the indie game scene is not necessarily the game itself, but then what people do with the game once oh, they God. make it yeah. their own. And, Absolutely. You know, the zombie conversion for Dogs in the Vineyard. Or the Jedi like conversion. There's a rule, one of the axioms that uh, one of the main authors in the indie community came up with is that any game that works reasonably well can be used to run a Jedi game. <laughs> nice. That hack, it's almost a litmus test. So the game works for what you're doing. Let's see if we can run a Jedi game with it. What is the indie game scene all about in terms of what are the themes that they explore, the mechanics they do, what sure. sorts of things do they bring to the table? And then how can we bring those as add-ons to other games, specifically D&D, since that's our sort of Northmore topic. I'm going to narrow this down a little bit, though. I'm not going to talk about just indie games. What I think what we're really talking about, I hate to use this kind of jargon, but we're going to talk about story games okay. versus simply independent games. If you've got an indie game, I define that as being a game that's wholly owned by the author. And right. the guy who wrote it is also the guy who's sort of publishing it and putting it out so there. So indie games aren't defined merely by the fact that someone talked about them on the Forge? Exactly. <laughs> Forge games have a sort of philosophy to them. It may be like a background. Maybe they use some of the same jargon or something like that, but that doesn't necessarily make them an indie game. HeroQuest, Nobilis. The only reason I'm making this distinction is because when you talk about the stuff 
that indie games do. Right. What I'm hearing is this is the stuff that story games do because there are indie games gotcha. out there that are war games. Right. Uh, Vincent Baker, who wrote Dogs in the Vineyard, has a great miniatures mech game uh, called yes. Mechaton that's built out of Lego pieces. Right. I was just going to say that's the Lego game. Yeah, it's a Lego game. It's a really tight kind of battle tech right. system. It's not a story game, but it is definitely an indie game. Once D20 allowed everybody who had a fantasy heartbreaker ready to go out of their system, the pus was released from that festering wound of not being able to get that it out of their brought system. brought it up to the skin years. level, and then you can kind of lance that boil. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, everybody got that out of their system, and then suddenly there was this, well, okay, I got my D&D writing out of my system. Now what do I want to do? Yeah. And then the internet allowed a lot of people with much more niche interests to talk to each other. Yeah. You know, what common things are there that people are exploring that we can hook into other games? Oh, yeah. Really, the indie game movement, and I'm going to say the Forge, which people always associate Forge games, which is horror story games, with indie. I think partly because the, uh, well, the URL is like IndieRPG.com or something crazy like that. Of course, people are going to associate that. That was actually around before the big 3.0 bubble. I can't help but make an economic uh, reference with everything that's going yes, on. Yes, well, you, you say economic bubble, I say boil, you know. It's- boil, bubble, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all pretty much the same thing. A lot of the guys that are familiar with that did a lot of stuff with 3.0 when it first came out. And then when that subsided, they realized there was other stuff they wanted to do and they gravitated towards other folks that were also writing not D&D stuff. It's such a confluence of events because the internet made that possible. The fact that those forums were out there where people could just sort of scream at each other in a sophisticated intellectual way, but there was some yelling. Obviously somebody not being able to communicate that well in text, being misunderstood, that goes back and forth, that kind of thing. But well, also, and I think it also lends itself to a fantastic amount of pretentiousness that uh, somewhat hard to get past sometimes. It, sometimes it is. Some of the people that were in that and really being involved in that, a lot of it came out of, we've had good games, we've had bad games, and some of the games that we've had have been really bad. Right. And and we want to identify why they were really bad, why they were not fun, why I felt like I had pretty much just gotten my soul ripped out of my body or like <laughs> all choices were completely removed from me. And I want to be able to explore that. That's part of it. You say pretentiousness. I'm not going to argue about that. But I think that there are people who are very, very careful and want everybody who's having the conversation to be very, very careful about the words that they're using. Right. They will have these miles long conversations about what should we call this particular thing that we're witnessing in the game and everybody wants to develop a lexicon for whatever it is they're passionate about it's just sometimes people get a little too concerned about the words and not about the game sure but understand that a lot of the reason that that comes out is because they're burn victims because two years ago we decided, you know, somebody was having this conversation about something similar and we didn't really nail down what it was. And you were talking about, we right. were using the same word for two completely different things. And it ended up being this incredible meltdown that took us like 10 months to recover from. So now we're very careful. And if we had just used two different words, we would have been fine. If we did just ask what we meant, they over communicate, but they over communicate because they have under communicated in the past. So would you say that a lot of this, I guess, forge type world is reactionary in general? Because you said this is a reaction to we've had bad games. This is a reaction to we we had miscommunications. I often find a lot of that stuff feels sort of reactionary. I think that the original ripples were generated by stuff like that. But now you have people who, I'm a good example, who came into it after all that stuff happened. I'm doing it simply because that's what the culture has become. You know, I want to be careful about it because everybody else is being careful about it. Right. I don't want to step on everybody else's you know good time. And generally speaking, it's functional. You've got 80 very opinionated people brought together in a forum and they're not sending each other letter bombs. They're doing pretty well. 
So to answer the actual question that you asked, what the story games are doing that you can maybe want to bring to D&D is that there's a different kind of focus to the games. D&D does certain things very well. If you're in the mood for that kind of game, if that's the game that you want, if you want that sort of, you know, that tactical game, that's D&D's strong point. It does great skirmish level tactics kind of thing. If there's other stuff that you want to maybe emphasize more, you can borrow that from other games. Story games tend to focus a lot on character development, character change, not just my sword skill went up, Right. Or my, my thievery skill went up or... Right. Well, um, if you listen to the Ryan Dancy philosophy, WoW does D&D better than D&D ever could because it's all about tactics and number crunching. And the computer can do that far better than anybody at the table ever could. Sure. I do WoW. Uh, I'm a gaming whore. I'll play anything. You know, <laughs> I wasn't uh, going to say it. You want me to play something indie on Skype? You want me to put D&D, WoW, Lord of the Rings online, Lord of the Rings offline? I don't <laughs> care. I'll, I'll play it all. Cribbage? I'm good. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you want to bring. 4.0 has done a fantastic job of seeing the way that was going and what people were really enjoying about the online experience and figuring out a way to let humans actually be able to give another human that kind of experience using mechanics that were more streamlined. And what I'll say about D&D is that up until 3.0, people were using D&D to do things that D&D wasn't good at simply because D&D's rules were so loosey-goosey that you really could do anything and everything with it. And there really wasn't anybody else putting out enough games that you could right. just come up with a random game. So it was easier just to say, well, I'm going to do this kind of game, but I'll use D&D because that's what I have. Right, or GURPS or Champions or something. But yeah, huge preponderance of generic rule systems that right. could be applied everywhere. The upside being they could be applied anywhere. The downside was is that your fantasy game tended to feel a little bit like your mm -hmm. spy game. What the story games tend to focus on more is sort of character change and development, stuff that happens to much my character story rather than the focus being on say a save the world arc a, a robert jordan-esque wheel of time thing yep. going on or, or it's more about a personal journey it, yeah character. exactly it's it's that personal journey for the characters the games tend to focus on setting development and exploration and there's usually a focus on sort of a thematic story so when you say setting development i mean one classic trope of DD in terms of setting is i have a map Right, exactly. And with indie games, at least in my experience, it's really not so much about the map so much as it is person A contributed idea A, right. person B contributed idea B, and how does that all blend together? I'm going to give you an example of the same game in two different systems. You take a barony where you've got like the baron who's dying and the two sons who are maybe vying for control and all the significant NPCs, and you insert the players. In a D&D game... Uh, probably what you're doing, you've, you've set up a series of clues that's going to lead to what the GM has determined is going to be the person who's behind it. Yep. Um, you go through a series of challenges. At the end of it, you fight the big boss. You either lose and the thing goes up in flames, or you win and Baron's soul's back in his body or whatever. Mm, that's pretty typical. You twist that in a story game. For example, in the game that I ran that was somewhat like that, everybody who does it, their characters right off the bat say, okay, here's all the NPCs. Here's this person. She's this person's daughter, so on and so forth. I want everybody sitting down here to have a relationship with two other NPCs on this list of characters. Mm -hmm. And not just how you know them, but something in the relationship with that person that's at risk. And okay. so something that can change and something that can happen in the game with that relationship as opposed to it just being something you, you wrote right, on your Right, right. That simple act changes the complexion of the game mm -hmm. tremendously. I might have a sketch out. I mean, I know the Baron's sick. I know somebody's doing it to him. But if a guy comes in there and says, okay, well, I have a relationship to the widow sister-in-law of the Duke. And my relationship is she's secretly teaching me dark sorcery. And you're sitting there in the back of your head going, but she's not a sorceress. I didn't stat her out to do that, that's the relationship the guy has. So now right. she's the dark so sorceress with the dark with magic and, and, and that has a tremendous amount of impact. Mm -hmm. But also the story isn't just down to the end, beat the big boss and beat him. It's about what happens between those characters. Mm -hmm. The whole focus shifts from the process of this, you know, what's, what's going to happen with this character to, or what's going to happen with the story, this arc, what's going to happen with this heroic arc 
down to what's happening to the characters, what's being done to them. So instead of the DM has set up a challenge, can you beat it or not? Right. It really becomes, here's what's going on in the world. How is that going to change? Right, exactly. How is it going to change you? How is it going to change the people around you? And it's great when you do that and have four players sitting there at the table. Every single one of their characters has a relationship with one of the NPC. That's fantastic. It's so much fun. If you squeeze that NPC, everybody, everybody at the table flinches. Or they go, ooh, yeah, squeeze you some more. Right. There's always a reaction. There's that visceral kind of thing. You said that one of the big things is world building, where everybody sort of contributes to the world in terms of relationships is what you just described. To a greater or lesser degree. I mean, you might have the true world building. You know, we want to build the barony down mm. to building of the backdrop in like a Dashell Hammond. What's that network of relationships mm -hmm. that we're going to be diving into? Kind of defining a subgenre and maybe the milieu that you'll Yeah, exactly. Explore. You're, you're really just kind of saying we're, we're adding a lot of depth to what's going on there. I love D&D. I enjoy it immensely when that's what I want to do. As a person who plays just about every game, yeah. you uh, <clears throat> you have a mood that switches from game to game. <laughs> I don't, I'm not exactly as volatile as I seem, but, and I want to make it clear flexible. that I'm not trying to rag on, on 4.0. People will come to, you know, will come up to me or anybody and say, well, listen, I'm, I'm running a D&D game. I've got a story. I want to differentiate that just a little bit by saying there's a difference between, say, a narrative where it's a series of statements that tell a particular series of events. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anybody can do a game log and say, well, first this happened, then that happened, then this happened, and then we killed the boss. Beowulf is a story like that if you want to break it down that way. There's this guy, he's killing a bunch of people, this right. monster, and then Beowulf comes with his 14 guys or whatever, and then he beats him up, and then he finds his mom and kills her and kills him and becomes king. And it's all a series of events. Or you can insert theme into it and say, this is about how power is going to corrupt you no matter how heroic you were originally. If that happens in a D&D &D game, I submit that it's happening by accident or it's happening because the people at the table are consciously choosing to do that without any support from the system because that's not what the system does. And a story game does that. It says, let me help you insert that theme and let me give you this bullhorn to emphasize when you right. hit that. I that's what that's, it, that's the difference between those two games. And I think that's exactly it, is that in an indie game, the mechanics are all about supporting character and story development, whereas in a traditional role-playing game, the mechanics are all about overcoming challenges. And I wouldn't necessarily say all about, but there's always some part of the system that goes to it. Sometimes the games are very, very simple. They boil down to do one particular thing. And in those cases, yeah, that's what it does. And in other games, I'm going to say Burning Wheel, really crunchy, super crunchy rules. Makes D&D &D look like a tricycle. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, very detailed combat, but still has that stuff in there for character. You've got your spiritual attributes, and that's not actually what they call them. That's from Riddle of Steel, which is the, the granddaddy <laughs> that's of That's what happens when you play too many games. Yeah, but you've got elements to your character that are, this is the thing that my character is about. Well, and when those things get hit in Burning Wheel, it's important. Absolutely. It's just that when you're fighting, you get to do all the crunchy stuff and say, I hit him, you know, right here. Well, and, and Burning you know, Wheel also has mechanics for doing other things than fist fighting. They have the whole Duel of the Wits mechanic oh, yeah. where you can, you know, fight with words and resolve all those sorts of conflicts. Plus, they have things like, well, I'm going to invent a bunch of people that I know that can give me assistance. And those mechanics let you say, oh, well, since I'm good at that, why shouldn't I go ahead and do that? Right. Whereas in D&D, &D, you're like, well, what I'm good at is swinging a sword, but, you know, I'll spend a few minutes talking, you know, in between. Yeah, why not? Yeah, and you know, Foro with the skill challenge system tried to kind of step up and say, we're going to support that. They are so close. They are so close to having something that works and they're just, I don't know what it is. I haven't seen a hack that I absolutely love yet. Because the thing is, their combat system is so good. The combat yeah. system for what it is, is really good. It gives you a, a lot of a lot of options, a lot of excitement there. Well, it's a great level of extraction on combat. Right. 
They just haven't quite figured out how to do that with skills. So skills always kind of end up being that redheaded stepchild. It doesn't have that depth and they're yep. trying to give it to it. They're, they're doing a great job trying. It's just not quite there yet. I don't know exactly what the hack is. So is there is. anything about D&D that you think prevents people from doing that? Or is it just a matter of there's nothing there that helps you? Yeah, there's nothing there that helps you. If you look at it from a player perspective, when a player sits down at the table, they're not necessarily an expert on how to swing a sword, how to shoot a bow, how to wield magic spells or anything like right. that. So they need help from the system to explore that. If you look at it from the indie game perspective or the story game perspective, not everybody's an expert on exploring character relationships or writing plots Absolutely. or building worlds or everything else. So sometimes it's nice to have some help from the system on that. Not everyone is going to be a fantastic diplomat. Sometimes yeah. it's okay to rely on the dice to say, my guy's better at this than me. Indie games are the only ones that have certain things that have become status quo because they were burn victims. People say, I don't want to have everything rely on just a diplomacy check and have people just say, well, I'm going to convince them and drop the dice and say, oh, yeah, that's because that happened complaint. to them in the past. Right. They got burned by that, so they, they, they don't want that to happen. There are ways to have people be very invested in what's happening with their character without actually using improv theater with the GM to determine whether or not I successfully convinced the Duke to you know give me a pony. So now, wait a minute. I think this is going to be a controversial thing you're saying. Are you saying that story games actually make you less of an improv theater geek at the table than D&D does. Okay, I don't think that's about system, one way or the other. Regardless of that, I want people to acknowledge that you don't have to do that, regardless of what game you're playing. Embrace the system, whatever the system is. The thing is, they're still using a system. One of the games I had a lot of game time invested in is Amber Diceless. You want to do a search and have me come up on the internet <laughs> and see confluence of, yeah, my name, Amber, yeah. And it's a true Diceless system. In that so there's no rock, paper, scissors or anything? There's no the rock, paper, scissors. There's a numeric value to your character, like four stats. And after that point in time, it's entirely GM fiat and what you can talk your GM to. There is a system in place and the system is Joe decides or, yep. or Tim decides. Right. And that's the system. It's a subjective system. After a while, those systems kind of break down, I think, because you're not really role-playing the thing that you think is cool anymore. You're role-playing the thing that the GM thinks is yes, cool. Yes, you're, you're, you're gaming the system as much as you're yeah, using exactly. And dice. the system yeah. is what the GM likes, so you're going to say things that the GM likes. So you're not really just role-playing Well, and I think that those systems play. are incredibly dependent on everybody's energy level at the table, everybody's yeah. mood, sure. whether or not the GM's in a bad mood or not. And they're also incredibly dependent on getting out of personal ruts. Because yeah. with no dice to sort of throw things off of the path you were on, right. you're just going to go down the path every time now, that you one, normally would go on. In my experience, most of the D&D games that I've played in, certainly before 3.0 and, and even after that, are at least half diceless. Sure. It's combat and course. everything else is diceless. I mean, honestly, as much as I know GMs fudge behind the screen, most of the stuff's diceless anyway. Because um, <laughs> I mean, you're rolling the dice and yes, it's being compared to a scale, but the GM's moving that scale back and forth. That is actually one of my biggest weaknesses as a GM is that I'm looking for the story to go a certain way. Absolutely. And so I crank the system to make it go that way yeah. which keeps us in those ruts that hopefully the dice would get yeah. you out of I, and i think the reason for that is that DD doesn't deal with failure well you've noticed a real trend in, in indie games that they don't get rid of dice it's a lot of role playing and the players have a tremendous amount of input and they can say this or that has happened the dice are still there and if anything the dice are even more present at the table mm -hmm. than they are for a DD game because there's you know we're not just relying on we want the dice to kind of come in and say, yeah, that's what you kind of want to have happen, but we're going to take you out of your comfort zone a little bit and say that mm -hmm. isn't going to succeed. 
Yeah, um, whereas in D&D, the dice are really more of a timing mechanic. How long is it going to take you to kill the monster? Yeah, that's that's all, I, I love that. It's because I have that same weakness. Because I've done that a number of times in the past where mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, it would suck if he died right now, so we were going to tweak that. Or it would suck if they failed right now. I've done that, so I've taken away the screen. It's made it harder for me to actually have stuff up there. I don't want the screen up. I roll all the dice, and I yeah. roll them in such a way that they land out in the middle of the table. Right. It forces me to be... You and know, I think, actually, 4-0 makes that a lot a easier bit. because yeah. the mechanics are more solid, so you can trust them a little better. Yeah. You don't have to sort of know from the beginning you're going to have to fudge to make it work. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to accidentally kill the four-hit-point mage. We've okay. discussed some indie game sensibilities. We've discussed that uh, from the story game perspective, it's sort of about collaborative world-building and collaborative character interactions yeah. and moving your character along through a progression along that character's path in the story. Certainly a tremendous number of those games really emphasize building the characters together at the table and talking. And so, whereas a D&D game might be, well, you go off, make your character, bring it in, and then we'll make it work in the story. This right. is more, let's sit down and, and come up with a group of characters that's interesting, even if they're not necessarily getting along. One of the reasons for that is because of the fact that the games are traditionally about exploring this heroic story arc or exploring mm-hmm. not the characters but say the setting. I've got this really cool setting. We're just going to pal around yes, the, in there. The tour and, to realms kind of. Yeah, thing. we're going to do. We're going to play in the sandbox. That's how living campaigns manage to work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is and because it, the story is the story, no matter who solves the. You're mystery. not writing even on paper. You're writing on chalkboard with a living campaign. As soon as you walk out of the room, the teacher's going to wipe down that blackboard, and the next class is going to come. Well, and the whole idea of a D&D module from back in the day was it was really more like an army obstacle course. Yeah. Anybody can go through it, and it'll be fun, and it'll be exciting, but it's really just an obstacle course. And you know what? That's okay. If exactly. That's what, if that's what you're sitting down to play, sometimes you're tired, you're beat up, you had a long day, and you mm-hmm. just want to come in and kill kobolds and take their stuff. That's awesome. Well, Do and that. The, the other thing that D&D does is if that's the framework that the rules are going to flow through, yeah. then you can add onto that any role-playing, any diceless stuff. D&D that is a fantastic jalopy for like bolting other stuff onto Yeah, it's, it, it's like the A-team vehicles, right? I mean, yeah. you know, whatever you want to <laughs> weld on, you can. D&D supports having a very long campaign. There's yeah. many, many people who have played D&D games that with the same characters have gone on for years and years and years, which is part of the reason that it's so dominant in the industry is because once someone starts playing it, they can keep playing it for a long time. The downside being that once somebody starts playing it, you kind of feel like you have to. Um, yeah, you, well. you know, it's like you're, you're never saying, hey, can you make four Saturdays in a row? You're saying, can you make Saturdays from now until... Now until the heat death of the universe. Yeah, exactly, really, right? exactly. You don't see that in indie game. You can. I've seen people that have done that with certain systems. But it's definitely the exception and not the rule. Well, you know why my D&D game went on for four and a half years? Because two of the players consistently went to the game store and bought modules. To feed you. To feed me for the level range I was mm-hmm. in. So if I wasn't really feeling like coming up with something new, I had narrow, mini-sized modules that I could just uh, trot out at the moment's notice to say, yeah, right. okay, well, you find a ruin in the trees. And they just, you know, would do that. Right. It's a video game. Well, you know, I don't know if it's so much a video game, but it's definitely. There were, days, there were weekends when it was like there were weekends when it was like that. We had story arc stuff going on because it's me. At the same time, you know, you can always, you know, we're just going to kill Cobalt. Well, yeah, and that's the thing that D and D supports that a lot of other games don't. Is worst case, if you don't feel like doing a lot of role playing, if you don't have it to give, if you're just not feeling that creative in terms of stories and characters yep. and everything else, you can still sit down and have a good time. Yeah. And if you have a moment of brilliance, the game's not going to stop you. Right. But at the same time, it's not really going to help you. Definitely requires people not necessarily to bring their A game when you're playing an indie game, but you need to bring A game. A game, any game. Um, <laughs> yes. you, need, you need to be willing to have some sort of energy level. You can't just sit there and, and wait for your turn and then roll your dice. You, you're expected to contribute. And 
It's not just because that makes your character cool. Part of your job is to make everybody else's cool, too. Let's talk specifically about a case study on that. So you and I have both played Galactic, uh, which yeah. is an interesting game that never has, at least not yet, quite made it to full release. No, although the author did get in touch with me just recently and said that thanks to you and some stuff that you had sent him, he gotten all gung-ho again. And he was ready to oh, start well, going back Yeah, in. great. I've actually introduced it to a whole bunch of other people here locally who are very excited yeah, about it and they I really like it. I think it's a great game. But you do see the shorter arcs, and I think Galactic's definitely one of those. It's it's actually built right into the system. You exactly. have this, 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 and then the heat death of the universe kind of you yeah. know there's going to be an end there's definitely an end that's one of the things that i think is fascinating is that of course a good story really has a beginning middle and an end yeah when you put together a story that has a beginning middle and end in my opinion you're really producing a film in terms of the length of stuff that happens whereas in the D game you have little tiny beginning middles and ends that are strung back to back to back to back and your big beginning middle and end sometimes never makes it because the campaign flames out before sure. you get there or absolutely i tend to think as indie games more as an hbo mini series <laughs> or or like an english television series like mi5 it's a good british tv show mm -hmm. six to nine episodes you don't get a monster of the week episode that's just basically a monster of the week episode mm -hmm. when you've got 22 episodes in the u.s to say buffy you've got a monster of the week episode that really is just you know it's fluff and it's fun a lot of DD games that are basically going on forever and ever and ever aren't necessarily even a story arc -y type of thing like, say, Buffy, which does have an end. It's sort of a mega movie in that sense. So you well, can sit down they, and watch like, the Buffy movie that takes seven days to watch nonstop. Yeah, well, I mean, they had kind of season-ender story arcs. Sure. A lot of it was filled in with Monster of the Week, Monster which of the is Week, exactly yeah. how D&D works. Uh, you know, a lot of D&D games are more like Seinfeld, where they don't have any connection from one episode to the next. <laughs> well, yeah, you sometimes. Know, and, and it's like the A-Team, right? Yeah, Every week, they have, somebody's got a problem, and they got to weld something together to solve it. I yeah, mean, exactly. You know, nobody permanently you know, lost a thumb or, you know, is, is now mourning their lost love that's going to continue all the yeah. way through. Well, the and the general's chasing him around and occasionally he gets closer than not. But, you know, that's, that, about, yeah, that's it. about it. You know, I have to tell you, my wife is going to love the fact that we're making so many 18 references. <laughs> so I was a huge Sh fan. Shout out to Kate. I don't know if she was an 18 fan as much as a Dirk Benedict fan. I mean, uh, I'm well, getting over yeah. that, but yeah. Uh, with D&D, &D, the reason that you can get away with having a long campaign is that the system rewards you even if you don't have a story that kind of has a beginning, middle, and an end. You can have fun. You can have a monster of the week. You can weld something together you know, to kind of bring that analogy together. And then you can do that again the next week, right. and that's okay. It isn't that it rewards you even if you don't have a story. The concept of whether or not you have a story never comes into the reward structure in the game. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's just not even on the table. Whereas know? with a lot of story games, that's exactly how you get rewarded it is by having story things happen it's a very different focus than if you're exploring character whose issue is that he's lost his wife and he's trying to deal with that i mean that's going to get resolved because you can't just interminably have them mope for four yes. and a half years yes you end up with the gilligan syndrome or whatever yeah it gets boring you just can't keep doing that i mean how many times have you had a player who brings the same character over and over and over again well, that's typical for most people, right? They have something they want to explore, and sometimes they just feel like they never scratched that itch, and yeah, sometimes exactly. it's more like that's just what they want to play. They have tropes. They have certain mm -hmm. characters that they re-explore. I'll run a particular indie game, and it happens to be one that's successful, and it runs all the way through the end, and we've got that thing, and they bring that character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after that's done, they don't bring that character anymore. Because they got it out they of their got system. It. They yeah. got it. The guy finally got his thing. He finally got closure on that character concept. And, you know. and that's tough in D&D because there is no defined end, right? It's the heat death of the universe. And there's, uh, there isn't really that moment when you know that that character's really arrived. I mean, there right. could be, but if it is, it's entirely being done with the players and the GM at the table 
Yes. And there isn't any help for it from, from the system. Again, I don't want to slam 4.0. That's not what it's designed to no, do. No, I mean, so and that's it's okay. It's like saying, you know, I don't really get very good gas mileage out of my uh, pickup truck. Yeah. 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 It's not designed to do that. I don't get it. It was more like saying, I don't get very good gas mileage out of my, uh, you know, that wind up toy that I have in the tub. It's a completely different thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't get gas mileage out of my computer. It's not for that. Right. It's okay. Well, so speaking of character types, since we're, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in on this. People do bring the same character a lot, and sometimes if they get out of their system, they can move on. A lot of times, people will bring some wacky character just either because they're tired of what <laughs> yeah. they have been playing or just the mood they're in or I whatever I want to else. play the gnome. Yeah. I want to play the gnome that carries around the pad of butter and wears nothing but leather bondage gear and yeah. follows around the, the half-elf all the time breathing through his mouth. You and know? Some people have said that that's sort of a cry for help in terms of, <laughs> I really want to role-play something, and this is the only way that I can do it is to be so extreme that yeah. people have no excuse and, you know, that's except fair. There, to there's, react there's to certainly it. Folks that are like that they just feel like i want to be wacky and i see that in an indie game i'll give you a perfect example of this and the game's sort of meant to be sort of comedy so it works but there's an indie game out there called inspectors story game it's basically a mix-up of ghostbusters and sort of the confessional that you see from like the real world where you cut away from the scene and you've got the guy saying man i totally didn't expect that guy to have a pocket full of uh, hot sauce packets from taco bell i mean who would have who would have guessed and then sure. when you jump back the fact that he's done that in that confessional means that now he's got you know hot sauce so it's almost like the uh, the noir monologue it affects the game but it cuts away you're supposed to have when you play the game a chair off to the side that nobody gets to sit in unless they're doing the confessional (laughs) okay it's a lot of fun and it is sort of a ghostbusters thing so it's okay if it gets a little bit silly but generally speaking when you have a game like that dungeon and i mean d-o-n-j-o-n right written by clinton r nixon has that what people call that sort of silliness factor from people who have first come into the game and they find out that I'm the player, but I can contribute whatever I want. So the first time that they play, it tends to be wacky. There's a Bugs Bunny factor. Exactly. That tends to damp down once people sort of get it out of their system. Right. Wacky characters... How does that work in an indie game? With a D&D game, it doesn't necessarily have as much of an impact for the same reason that any characters that you bring to the table don't necessarily have an impact on the game. You know, the thing we already talked about, you can bring anything because the game is going to continue on without you having a tremendous amount of impact on the world anyway. Yes. So it's okay if you're playing the bondage gnome because... You can still shoot your whatever at the monster and it'll fall down. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if you're bringing like the ennui-laden, pseudo-French half-elf <laughs> bemoaning yes. their half-breed fate. That's okay too because again, that's not going to have a tremendous amount of impact. If you bring the bondage gnome to an indie game that's about character... Be prepared to explore the bondageness of your bondage gnome. There's a couple different ways that could go. He could be a very tragic, sad character by the end of it. It could work. He could be a really funny character. But there's another perfectly legitimate response to that, which is to set them down and say, listen, dude, I know you want to do the bondage gnome thing. We're playing a 1930s black and white detective <laughs> film. The bondage gnome doesn't work. I mean, not at any level. And I want to give you a good time, but at the same time, we've all agreed... And you agreed to do this 1930s noir thing. Let's talk about it. And you see a lot more of that, I think, just within the text. I'll be fair and say 4.0 does this a lot more than previous versions of the games. In the indie games, you see a lot more. Talk to your players. Yes. Set those expectations and make sure that everybody's on the same page and and talking about that and saying, well, this is what we want. And that's okay to talk about it. It doesn't have to be a Ouija board where everyone pretends that we're not actually moving the needle. Mm -hmm. We can say, this is what we want. We want this. And it's okay. As long as you don't talk about it to the point where having talked about it so much before the game, you don't even need to play the game anymore. Yes, well, that's true of any game. Yeah, be careful of that. So in terms of energy level, we've hinted about this a little bit. I want to just get this explicitly on the table, though. My experience is with an indie game, 
everybody at the table's energy level matters. If if one or more people are just the plants or the rocks sitting at the table, it definitely starts to drag a bit because everybody's so interconnected and the game so depends on people's contributions. Yeah. Whereas with D&D, if you've got two people who just roll their dice on their turn, it doesn't actually affect the game that much. Yeah. And indie games like playing hacky sack. There's a dated reference. But, you know, I mean, yeah, if you've got the one guy there who the hacky sack drops in front of him, they sort of look at it for a second, then they kind of kick at it once it's already on the floor and, you know, yep. shove it over to somebody else. Absolutely. That, obviously, it's a momentum killer. Everybody's played, I think, probably a D&D table or any game table where you've got somebody who's over in the corner knitting yes. or they read when it's not their turn or... Yes. They're doing something else. And it's doubly worse if, say, you're having a role-playing scene where, like, two characters are talking to the Duke and everybody else isn't there and they just kind of... And especially in D&D and, because, again, there's no mechanic that says, even though I'm not good at talking to the Duke, my character is. You right. Know, they, they try to get to there and, then, again, they're almost there, like you said, but there's nothing that really supports that in a sophisticated way. I think, well, no, I'm not saying it's completely unsophisticated. I think the biggest problem that 4.0 has right now with that system, as it stands, is that you have a cultural inertia against in, that in happening D&D, right yeah. now there's a wide-ranging population of folks for whom in previous versions of D that hasn't worked they're not going to try to engage that system and they're hopefully that will change trust the dice yeah. and trust the system to do that and to be fair that system's a little creaky so you don't necessarily want to trust it <clears throat> yeah and it's not as free-flowing as a typical indie game I feel like to do a yeah. skill challenge in, in D&D 4, I have to design it as carefully as I was have to design a combat encounter. Right. And as intentionally ahead of time in terms of right. crunching you numbers can't... and everything else as opposed now, to just running it on the fly. And I think that might be a level of familiarity. I, I've certainly read some stuff from like the guys who wrote the 4.0 system who will throw these things off the cuff. One guy I know did an entire dungeon exploration, like down to the final boss fight. He did the whole thing on skill checks. Mm, on, no, I on, on it. You know, the your opponent was the dungeon, and mm-hmm. uh, you were rolling. You know, all your rolls were working your way down. So he did the whole thing without a map, except for the final room. And then he had this great set piece battle with all the different levels and everything. But he didn't. Everything else was all done with skill checks over there, and it took like a couple hours. You can do that, and he did it off the cuff because he was familiar enough with uh, page forty-two, the the wonderful right. page forty-two, yeah, and that has all the challenge, the, yeah, the challenge levels and everything, and what the damage is going to be. For well, and I, I'm or, hoping that I can get there. I'm definitely not there yet. No, I, I yeah, neither am I. But, wanna you know, be, but it's good to know that that level of flexibility is out there. In an indie game, I think everybody's level of energy contributes to the game more than in D and D, where the DM drives that energy yeah, level. D and D is not playing hacky sack it's it's you know bowling if you have one guy who's got an off game everybody else can have a good game the overall score might be lower than normal but it's not going to hurt your game if somebody else is you know bowling gutter balls when you've got busy people who are playing a game for maybe two hours a night that's an important factor to consider everybody's leaning forward except for the one guy who's leaning back and kind of half asleep not that i'm visualizing anyone that i personally know right now except i totally am (laughs) and i'm I'm not either you know uh yeah exactly again you don't have to bring your a game but you do have to bring a game of some kind. You know, we've talked a lot about how indie games have rules that support doing a lot of the things that we've done dicelessly in D&D for years. Right. Can we expand what we can do with characters in D&D without adding rules, or is that really not getting us anywhere we aren't already? Yeah, I've actually gone to great lengths not to hack 4.0 when I run it up to this point in time. I've got one hack, and I'm actually letting go of that one really soon. I'm going to replace it with a different hack. But, <laughs> um, I've only got really the one hack. I want to play the game the way it is. A lot of what people will call the story games rules light systems. I don't think of them as rules light systems. I think of them as rules lean. There isn't any fat in there. What that also means is that there isn't a rule that is you know, your appendix right. or your tonsils that can just be tossed out. All of them matter. And I'm trying to play as much as possible. I'm never going to use the encumbrance rules, but, you know, (laughs) 
I try to play as much as possible with using that whole system right. and saying this is the system that we're going to yeah, play. Yeah, and I do the same thing. Um, and if you don't want to play everything that's in there, play something else. Right, but there's a difference between I'm not going to play it as written and I'm going to add stuff on it to kind right. of up my fun factor. But right now I'm trying to not bolt anything on and let it play mm -hmm. how it is. There's a classic story about the guy who didn't get the job because he sat down with his boss at supper one night and at a restaurant and they both ordered steak and the guy who was applying for the job salted everything up and then you know dug in and the next day found out from the guy that he wasn't going to get the job and when he asked him why he said you know you didn't taste the steak before you put anything on sure. it and i want you to be a manager you know you're not making educated decisions if you haven't tasted the thing ahead of time so i'm, I'm trying to not salt the steak before i actually get a chance to, to taste it that. fully yeah but there's some stuff that you can do with the game i'm going to talk about two features of indie games that are really really common if you're talking about somebody who doesn't do a lot of these games what they see as being the most unusual compared to their D&D experience is going to be having to do with uh, player authorship and right. the character focus. Player authorship, you get players with narration rights. And that looks different in every different game, mm -hmm. but that's always going to be kind of an important thing. Probably one of the first systems that ever did that a lot that gave players the ability to just say what things were and where they were and what was happening was Amber. Really, that's an indie game, too. I mean, if you go back far enough. Yeah, well, and Amber's been around for a really long it's been time. A, it's well before the indie thing, but it's completely owned by the author. It was done by a company that he basically came up with himself. It's always had kind of a you know a cult following, but not like a huge... People were always aware of it because at the time that it came out, it was like D&D. It was a couple of big ones, and like Amber was one of those non-big ones, and it, there weren't a lot of them, so it could be known. But... That wasn't system that let you do that. That was the setting that let you do that because of the characters that you're playing in Amber. And I'm not going to get into that in a lot of detail because that would be the next six hours. Your characters had the ability to change the environment in character. So you have to relinquish to the characters a certain amount of authorial ability in that game simply because characters can do that. So that started it. Inspectors, which I already mentioned, had a and, and Shab Elhiri Roach, which was written by another guy who's very big in the indie gaming right now, uh, Jason Morningstar, have kind of a system where your successes equate to, and I might be remembering that wrong Narration with the rights, Roach, but yeah, yeah um, with, the ins with Inspectors was, okay, I'm going to dig through all these computer files and see what I find. And you roll, and if you get a certain level of success, not only do you find out the details, but the GM says to you, okay, yeah, you found out some stuff about this case that you're supposed to be working on. What did you learn? And or what like, else did you find? Yeah. No, it's not what else. You give everything. I mean, the player, oh, okay. that scares the hell out of most GMs because you literally are flying by the seat of your pants and somebody else is steering. Yeah, well, and it also depends a lot on your players being responsible steerers. It's really important in games like that. Dungeon's another one, obviously, because Dungeon, again, it was successes, and you could turn those successes that you got on the dice either into more bonuses for your next roll or facts. I, right. I managed to get the door open, and behind the door, there's a blood stain on the wall and on the floor, and it leads down this long hallway to a locked door. It's all constrained, though. I can give three facts. I can say there's a dragon, but they're still, I'm constrained by three facts. And that's one of those systems. And then you have more constrained versions of that spirit of the century, which I think the authors, they're definitely aware of the story game movement, but these are guys, Fred Hicks and Rob Donahue and Leonard. I mean, they love traditional games and yes, they write. I would say that Satsi is definitely more of a traditional game. It's more of a traditional game, but it's definitely one of those jalopies that has a lot of extra parts in the kit box that yes. you can turn it into something else. And one of those things is narration rights. You can take those fate points that you can use for big bonuses in in play and also say things like i'm going to spend a fate point and i'm going to walk in the door on this scene or i'm going to spend a fate point and we walk into the airplane hangar and there's a dirigible ready to take off you know a lot of games when you talk about narration rights it really is i'm going to declare what happens 
in a global sort of way. Whereas I think Satsi really more is, you know what, I'm not going to roll for this. This is just how it happens and for this particular I'll be thing. perfectly honest. There aren't a lot of games that just let you say, okay, I'm going to declare what happens. They don't do that in a completely unconstrained way. Right. Um, well, because otherwise the system wouldn't be supporting it. Yeah, exactly. It would just be, you know, dice yeah, the system, the system will tell you, you know, this guy won, um, this guy lost, this guy won because of X, Y, and Z, these, you know, these various right. factors, you know, those raw facts and you over here who happen to draw the highest card or happen to roll the highest dice, mm-hmm. you get to put that all together and how that works in the scene. And, right. and it's up to you. And I, I just it, think Satsi is much more about here's the narration rights about what happens with my character. Sure. Whereas some systems are more here's what happens to the story. Here's what happens to the scene. With that said, though, they they do have a pair a couple of paragraphs in there about how you can broaden that and say, OK, yeah, here you can you can just add some more stuff. So but again, I'm talking those are examples of things that are much more constrained. And the last one that I was thinking of is in terms of player narration and player authorship, a game called the mountain, Witch, which gave birth to uh, what's known as the mountain, Witch trick. I tell you what the indie scene, (laughs) the indie scene loves jargon and they have this amazing thread. I sent you a link to it where they try to figure out a name for this mountain, Witch trick. And the upshot of it at the end was that they've officially decided to call it the mountain, Witch trick. (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of conversation to say, you know what, let's just leave it at that. And the mountain, Witch trick is this kind of thing. You guys are in this uh, big room and you pull back this curtain and there's a big mural on the wall. And Tim, your character, it's really disturbing and, and almost frightening to your character. Why is it frightening? And what is the mural? Go. <laughs> the nature of that game is you've got a dark secret that you're supposed to be exposing and play over, yep. over the course of time. You can use that in any game. And that's the kind of thing. That's, it's not a rules bolted on thing. That's a GM technique. You know, you're in a graveyard. You see a gravestone. You gasp aloud so that everybody hears you and comes over. Why did you gasp aloud and what's on the gravestone? You can do that in any game. That right. works great. And um, it's it's a rule, if you will, because it's a mechanic. The mechanic is you see something and and I'm going to set the scene, I'm going to put it there, and I'm going to say, and now react to that specific thing. Or give me this piece of information. The GM's just choosing to give the players. You can add that as a technique in any game. And right. I don't think that it needs to be listed as a rule because it's a thing that the GM does. And the GM, let's say you have a very traditional D&D game. you got people who are very vehemently into this idea that the GM needs to be where all the authority of the game mm-hmm, as far as mm-hmm. what happens, officially happens, comes from. If that guy turns to you and says, why does this happen? That makes it okay. Because the DM told yes. you to do it, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that makes it okay. That's the player authorship stuff that the indie games will do. Character focus that the indie games will do. A lot of their stuff comes with interlacing the characters, saying, okay, you know two other people at the table right now. Your characters are in yeah. Tell me how your relationships are. Work that out. And not only that, but what do you have at stake? That's a very simple version of it. You also have Sorcerer, one of the granddaddies of probably the, I'll say modern in the game movement. The one from like, say the last seven, 10 years ago had the concept of kickers and bangs in there, two different things. And the kicker that you came up with your character, what put your character into motion? Uh, one mm-hmm. of my author friends calls it the inciting incident. Yep. It's the thing that once it happens, your character cannot, just cannot Go back to the again. way it used to be. Yeah. If you think about that, that thing that happens to your character that puts you into motion, that's a tremendous campaign starter. The GM has turned that over to the players. And right. saying, you don't say it that way. Most people will flip out and be terrified, but you're, you're basically saying, you're going to tell me how the campaign starts. 
But again, they have to a be capable of yes, coming up yeah. with something, which they, not they everybody might is. Like a deer in the headlights, yeah, and that's okay. Exactly. You can call that a rule, that kicker idea, mm-hmm. and I think it fits in without it really being an official rule because we have stuff in. In fact, I know how to fit it right into a D&D game. You've got that questionnaire thing you're supposed to ask. You know, like, yep. What's important to this guy? And it says, if you have other questions that you'd like to ask, ask your players those questions. Well, hey, ask this one. And it fits right in there because right. the D&D official rules gave you permission to ask more questions. And the last <laughs> thing is that idea that the system recognizes when you do something that's character significant, which D&D does not do right out of the box. When you have a character defining moment, D&D really doesn't mechanically help you. reward. It doesn't mechanically yeah. reward that. So that's, that's the last thing that the narrative stuff does. Stuff that I would add to it that I could add to a D&D game without doing any rules tweaking would be the mountain witch trick or just going to the players for some sort of input. Like, guys, I need three facts about this bartender. You can make a memorable character with three facts and you don't need any more than three facts. There's no one's really going to pay much more attention right. beyond that. So yep. give me three standout facts about this bartender. It doesn't have to have to be stuff that we know right off the bat. You can say, and his wife's cheating on him. I don't care. Right. Give me three facts. That kind of stuff going to the players as like a well of inspiration for the stuff that you're going to do. That's something that fits right into D and D. How can you do that without looking like a bad GM who doesn't know what they're doing? Because again, there's that tradition with D and D that the DM is the seat of all knowledge and power. And so there's a little bit of a vulnerability thing. Maybe if you say, okay, and you come up to the bar, uh, Bob, tell me what the name of the bar is. That, how do you do that without being like, well, I'm not prepared. Well, the mountain witch trick lets you look a little bit more omniscient about it because you can do it with that sly grin that says, ah, I'm pulling one over on you. Ha ha. I'm putting you on the spot. You have to be creative now. Go. It feels much more planned. And I tell you what, the weirdest thing about that is the player, let's say, for instance, he's got a dark secret that he's working on that he killed his wife and he's currently on lamb and he's OJ pretending that he didn't do it. And I'm actually investigating and blah, blah, blah. And the mural is going to reveal a big thing about that. And after the game, you do that and you ask the guy, why did that flip you out and what's on the mural? And he goes, man, I can't believe that that secret's already coming out so far to those players. Right. To everybody else at the table. I didn't think you were going to escalate that fast. I'm like, dude, I just asked you what was on the mural. You know, you did <laughs> You're that. You're the one and that connected They literally, things. even after you tell them that, they just can't see it. I guess that's your protection from looking like you don't know what you're doing because even after you do it, and even after you tell them that you did it, some folks will still sit there and think, you know, oh, you had that whole plan. So it's almost like a persistence of vision thing where it's like, well, I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to show you this, and you filled in the middle yourself. You filled in the middle yourself, and, you know, I didn't do that. I didn't know that there was a chinchilla involved in any way, and that mural <laughs> with the chinchilla thing, that was all you, man. I wouldn't have come up with that. Yeah, it's like the the scene where the hard-boiled detectives are interviewing the guy, and they say, why did you do this or this? And then he starts confessing to all the crimes for the last 20 years that yeah, he's done. Or like, whatever. whoa, hey. Hey, hey, whoa, kind of oversharing. Really didn't, you know, to a certain extent, it requires more prep. I am definitely a GM who doesn't do anything with the wizard's current knowledge. You know, if I'm, if I'm lost or like, I used to close out my, my Amber games. uh, And I had this whole web in my head of what the NPCs and stuff were doing. And sometimes they did stuff that was so unexpected and so drastic. I was like, guys, we're done. We've played three in hours. I got to react. I'm done because I need a week to process (laughs) what stuff's going to happen. And I need to figure out what everybody's reaction to this is. I'm not ready to play this off we played some short sessions um you know yeah a couple, know a couple hours and other times they were really long i don't okay. think it helps anybody to be that kung fu guru who's all-knowing because eventually at some point in time that's going to fall apart and then you look terrible. well and it puts a tremendous amount of responsibility on you that over time leads to dm burnout i'm very lucky on one hand but on the other hand i'm not i play with some great players they're very creative. A lot of them GM. You've got writers, you've got actors, you've got all these people. And I would be a 
surface of the sun flaming moron not to tap into that Uh, i mean that level of creativity why not use that why not get that kind of input and some of the games are built for that primetime adventures you build the television series at the beginning or mortal coil you're building this whole world with all of its magic you get some fantastic stuff out of that and i work better with that sort of exchange every game's got that what is role-playing thing at the beginning of the game right Uh, one of the standard ones is like what is role-playing and they explain a little bit so you basically the GM comes up with the plot and populates the world and the players play the protagonist, right? I mean, that, that's not an eyebrow raising statement if you are completely conditioned to standard role playing right. games. Think about that for a second, though. The GM controls the plot, but the players are running the protagonist. How is that? Possible? How is that even possible? With yeah. I, I mean, is it possible? Absolutely. Yes. If there is an exchange, if I've got this basic, you know, thing. There's got to be an acknowledgement that you're playing the protagonist. You are just as important as I am. In fact, I'm only one fraction of everybody at the table. There are five people sitting there. I'm one fifth of the story. In a story game, I would say that the GM's job is still very important because really when you've got that one person who's not really stepping up, you're the guy who has to make up the slack. Yeah. So it's still a tough, still a tough, tough job. It's just a different kind of job. Okay, that brings us to the end of part one of my sit-down with Toys Testerman. Next time, we'll be back with part two, and we're going to discuss specific mechanics that you can apply to your D&D game to actually change the rules and add rules to implement some of these mechanics that support role-playing interactions as opposed to just support things that happen on the battle grid. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions or ideas, please join us at our forums at SpookyOutHouse.com. You've been listening to Return to North Horn a podcast released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 2.5 license by Tim White and Kim Stone. Our theme music is Charge of the Valiant from Dronalyn's Tower, Legends of Kithilin Volume 1, Tales of the Long Forgotten, used by permission of its composer, David Allen Young. Find out more about their fantastic gaming music at dronalyn.com. Visit us and many other fine podcasts at spookyouthouse.com. Spooky Outhouse.